This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, this morning we're going to wrap up our series that we are calling Distinctives. And uh, this was always meant to be sort of a, a family meeting type series. And uh, where, we're gonna, where we've been talking about our distinctive character traits, right? Those things that are distinct of us both uh, individually as followers of Christ and collectively as the body of Christ, but also our cultural traits, those things that are important to us as a church, our unique expression of them. And so we began by talking about worshiping together. And just as a little quick review, what time does service begin on Sunday mornings now? 9.30, way to go. We talked about praying together, about how we don't just say we'll pray, but stop and pray. We talked about serving one another as we installed our first four deacons. We talked about opening our lives to one another through hospitality, about uh, if this is your home, being a host and, and meeting someone new to you every week. We talked about generosity, right? Our collective generosity through things like helping churches thrive and hands and feed in the pantry and being generous individually with our finances, with our time and with the entirety of our lives. We talked about vulnerability, about uh, taking that, that step of initiating vulnerability and then inviting vulnerability with others. And then we talked about our defining distinctive of followers of Jesus, that of love, pointing people to Jesus by loving them like Jesus. And if you missed any one of those first seven weeks, I would highly encourage you to go back and watch or listen because these distinctive character traits very much define and shape the culture of who we are together as a church. And we're going to close this morning by looking at spiritual formation, that of being formed into the image of Christ, growing to be more like Jesus, because I think we misunderstand some things. I think we misunderstand what spiritual formation is. I think we misunderstand how and where it takes place, and I think we misunderstand why it matters in the first place. And help us do that, we're going to turn to this passage in 2 Corinthians 3 that Pastor Rob read for us just a few moments ago. As Paul, in this passage, he contrasts two ways in which the people of God have been formed over time. One, by looking back to the book of Exodus, back to the story of the Exodus, to Moses and to the old covenant that God established with his people on Mount Sinai, and the result of being formed by a strict adherence to a lengthy list of rules. But then looking to Christ, looking to the new covenant that God established with his people through his son and the result of being formed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians, the book that we're in this morning, it's actually the fourth known letter that Paul wrote uh, to this church, uh, the churches that he planted in the Greek city of Corinth, churches that he planted in his uh, second missional journey that we read about in Acts 18. And this was, a, this was a city that he lived in over the course of about 18 months. These were churches that he taught in, and as he lived among them, he grew to, to know these people and to love these people. But not only that, they came to know him. They came to know his character, and they came to know his story. They came to know how this former assassin became an apostle, how this former uh, persecutor of Christians came to preach Christ, that he, he was commissioned by God through a, this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And yet in spite of all of that, now a few years later, some were questioning his qualifications. They were doubting his credentials. They, they didn't trust him anymore. 
And they're like, remind us again why it is that you, Paul, why you think you're qualified to do what you do, why it is we should even listen to you. And so he asked them in verse one, he asked, do you, do you think I need some sort of letter of recommendation? Do you think I'm just another peddler of God's word trying to make a quick buck off you? And he's referring here to credentials that traveling itinerant teachers uh, would have carried. Letters written by someone who would have been more widely known, vouching for their character and validating their qualifications. Think of it as a first century resume with a list of references that you'd carry in your pocket with you. And Paul wasn't against this, right? He did this for others. If you flip ahead to chapter 8, he does this for Titus. Uh, if you look at the end of uh, his letter to the church in Rome, he, he did this for Phoebe, commending this deacon, this servant of the church, so that the church in Rome would, would welcome her and help her in whatever way she needed as she delivered them this letter, reading them the letter, explaining what Paul wrote, answering their questions. But Paul didn't need any such letter. Certainly not with them, not for them, not from them. Because they were his letter of recommendation. Their transformed lives were an open letter known and, and read by all who knew them, who saw the growth that had taken place in their lives over these last five or so years. It was a letter that Paul says was from Christ himself. A letter that Paul delivered to them as he taught them the words and the way of Jesus. A letter not, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God dwelling within them and among them. Written not on tablets of cold, hard stone by the finger of God, like the tablets Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, but written on human hearts by the spirit of God, etched into their inner being. And if it seems at this point that Paul, Paul seems awfully confident, it's because he is. But his confidence is not in his own competence. It's not in his own power and ability, thinking that he is somehow sufficient in and of himself to claim anything is coming from him, he says. Now, Paul, Paul is anything but arrogant. He recognized he was the, the least of the apostles. He was the worst of sinners. He was the, the least qualified, the least deserving for the task that God had called him to. And it's one of those times I can say, I think I get it. Because that's how I felt being called as lead pastor of a church that we helped start in our living room over 14 years ago, a church that Jill and I, we never expected to be a part of long term. I was called, as many of you know, without any vocational ministry experience. I'd spent the last 17 years working at Motorola. I was just a lay elder. And I was called without any formal theological education. I had a degree in electrical engineering. I knew a thing or two about spreadsheets. Um, what I knew to be true is that I brought, I brought nothing to the table. But God brought everything. And by his grace alone, we are miraculously still here another seven and a half years later, amen? This is all God's doing, isn't it? Everything. And just as he wrote in his, in his earlier letter to, to Corinth, we, we plant the seed, we care for and we water the seed, but man, it's God who gives the growth, isn't it? God gives the growth. Because our sufficiency to do anything for God comes from God, doesn't it? 
not from within, but from above. God is the one that made Paul sufficient to be a minister, to be a servant, not of the old covenant of Moses, but but of a new covenant, a covenant not of the letter of the law, but of the spirit of God. And he's alluding here to the very thing God promised the prophet Ezekiel, that he would gather his exiled people, cleansing them, giving them a new heart and a new spirit within them, all part of a new covenant that he promised to the prophet Jeremiah saying, behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with my people. Not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers at Sinai after leading them out of Egypt. Nah, a covenant that, uh, if you read through, it consisted of 613 rules and regulations. It was essentially the HOA CCNRs for ancient Israel. And if you're like, what are CCNRs? Like, God bless you that you don't know. CCNRs are like this Leslie Nope-sized three-ring binder filled with covenants, conditions, and more restrictions than you ever thought imaginable that govern every aspect of the HOA from when you can water your lawn, what color you can paint your house, and when you can put up your Christmas decorations. You're laughing because you've come into contact with your HOA CCNRs. But the old covenant, Mosaic law, it, in the same way, it governed every aspect of life in Israel, both individually and collectively as a people, as a nation, the, the social and the moral and the civil and the religious aspects. But the new covenant, he says, it is superior to the old in every way. See, under the old covenant, God's people, they were formed by an external adherence to a lengthy list of rules. But under the new covenant, We are formed by the spirit of God's presence within us and among us, bringing about an internal transformation, shaping our minds, softening our hearts so that we not only know God's will, but we desire to live out God's will, praying thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And while the old covenant stipulated God's expectations of his people, regulating how they were to live both individually and collectively as a nation, it in no way enabled them to live it out. But under the new covenant, we are empowered by the Spirit. The presence and power of God residing in us, enabling us to live out his will, all according to his way and obedience to his word. Because rather than being guided by a list of rules under the new covenant, we are guided by the Spirit walking by the Spirit, surrendering to the leading of the Spirit, listening to the voice of God as he says to us, this is the way. Walk in it. Just as he said to the prophet Isaiah, ultimately leading us in a way of love as the Spirit leads us to love. Our defining mark as followers of Jesus, as God's new covenant people, the distinctive that sets us apart from the rest of the world, Right, living out the great commandment of loving God and loving others and laying down our life for the good of others. And number five, in laying down our life, the Spirit leads us to life, to true life, to everlasting life. He says in verse six, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The old covenant was a, was a ministry of death, he says. And that the Mosaic law, it 
it demanded perfect obedience, sinless perfection. And any deviation, either doing what it is that God prohibited or not doing what it is that God commanded, led to death. And yet even that old covenant came with such glory that the people could not gaze at Moses' face, he says, after he came down the mountain. After having met with God on Sinai, after having gotten just a glimpse of his glory as he passed by. And Moses' face, it reflected this glory, but Moses, he knew, Paul says, that this glory would not last that it was slowly fading, being brought to an end. He says, sort of like a light stick. When you crack that light stick at night, it glows. But then over the course of the night, it slowly fades. And when you wake up, there's no light left. This glory was surpassed by the glory of the new covenant, the ministry of the Spirit, he refers to it, outshining it in the way that the rising sun outshines the moon, now just a shadow of its former self. Because the old covenant had expired. It, it served its purpose. It had run its course. It was never meant to be anything other than a placeholder until the new had come, revealing our inability to live for the glory of God and the good of others on our own. We, didn't, we couldn't do it. We wouldn't do it. We didn't want to do it. Leading to our condemnation, bringing about judgment, and revealing our need for a savior our need for someone to do what we were unwilling and unable to do ourselves. And he says the good news is that the new has come, the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of righteousness, righteousness, far exceeding the glory of the old, surpassing it in glory, a permanent glory that does not fade like a cracked glow stick or the moon at the rising sun. And he says in verse 12, since we have such a hope in the presence and the power of the Spirit forming us and empowering us and guiding us, we are very bold to share this hope with others because we want them to experience the same transforming work of the Spirit in their lives, don't we? Because unlike Moses who covered his face with a veil, he writes, knowing the outcome of the old covenant, that it was eventually being brought to an end, the Spirit of Christ Jesus says he'll be with us always until the end of the age. And just as was true in the days of Moses, was true in the day of Paul, in the day of us, not everyone will listen. Their minds hardened, he says, stuck in the old familiar ways. He says, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, when they read the Mosaic law, when they read the writings of Moses, all they see, all they see are religious rituals. They see a list of rules to follow, a list of boxes to check, because that same veil remains unlifted and lies over their hearts, unable to see God's glory. And the same is so easily true of us. Even if you spent your entire life in the church, becoming what I refer to as grown-up church kids, uh, nearly every pastor has a heart, a soft spot for a specific demographic of people. Mine is for grown-up church kids because that's exactly who I was. I never didn't know about Jesus. I was that cooing baby that making beautiful sounds. God, isn't that so beautiful? 
Just listen for a second. It's okay. I love it. I love it. I never didn't know about Jesus. But I guarantee you, I was not faithfully following the way of Jesus. There was no fruit in my life. I was a church kid, and all I did was I grew older. But over time, I think we come to see that the the way of Jesus, it might not look like what you were taught. Because the words of Jesus might not sound like what you thought. And we saw that throughout our time in the Sermon on the Mount a couple of years ago, didn't we? Because that same veil remains unlifted and over part of our hearts. It's easy to be stuck in a religious rut of following rules and checking boxes and just going through the motions, right? Doing what you've always done because that's just the way it's done. It's the only way you ever knew. Because we're fundamentalists at heart, aren't we? We are, we're fundamentalists at heart. We, we often see everything in black and white rather than seeing the many shades of gray that often exist, yet alone seeing color. And we start to think about anyone who doesn't worship the way we worship, anyone who doesn't read scripture the way that we read scripture, anyone who doesn't live the way that we live, they're doing it wrong. Hear me, you may have read God's word without being shaped by God's word. You may know it inside and out and have all the Iwana badges in the world and not ever once been shaped by it. You may be fully aware of the Trinity of one God in three persons as Father, Son, and Spirit and acknowledge the existence of God's Spirit, yet you've never once been led by the Spirit. You believe in a functional duality, not a Trinity. And that leaves you with no sense of wonder standing in awe of who God is and all that he's done and all that he's promised to do. Secure in his love, abiding in his love. It it leaves you with no sense of, of mystery as to how God has revealed himself, but instead always needing absolutes when they're not always given, turning the gray shades of gray into black and white and leaving you with no sense of humility when you read the pages of Scripture. Misunderstanding what Moses and Paul wrote because you misunderstood why they wrote what they wrote. And what you'll find over time is it's not as plain and clear as you were led to believe. And you're left living a very stagnant spiritual life. Stuck at almost that same level of spiritual maturity when you said that prayer, when you answered that altar call, when you did whatever someone asked you to do. And that's true even if you have been serving and attending and in giving your entire life in the church, doing all the things that Christians are supposed to do. Because you haven't surrendered the entirety of your life to God. You're still holding something back. And to this day, whenever Moses or Jesus or Paul is read, a veil lies over a portion of your heart. And here's the thing, like, I would love to just go up and lift that veil up for you, but I can't. I can't do that for you. No one in this room can do that for you. You can't even do it for yourself. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Only in Christ is the veil lifted. And that's what God wants to do for you. 
He lifts the veil when you turn to him. He lifts the veil when you turn to him. Humbly turning to God, returning to God, directing your attention and your affection to him. And when we do this veil that once separated us from that that intimacy that I think we all desire, it is removed, Jesus having torn that veil in two. And as our eyes slowly begin to adjust to God's glory shining through, think of, have you ever seen a video uh, of a child or an adult who who was colorblind, who saw in shades of gray, and they put on these special glasses, and for the first time, they see color. That's the awakening that the Spirit is doing within us. And we begin to walk in the light, seeing things differently. We begin to walk in freedom, Paul says, living differently, free to be who God created you to be, living out his will for your life, living according to his way, in obedience to his words, empowering you and equipping you to do that. This is the freedom that comes with being empowered and guided by the Spirit. Our lives transformed by the Spirit. And he ends in verse 18 saying, and we all, everyone, with unveiled faces, Christ having lifted the veil, now beholding the fullness of the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are all being changed at different rates, at different paces, but all along the same journey, all growing to be like Jesus. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And I think we all want that, don't we? I think that's what we're after. I think we all desire greater faith in Jesus. I think we desire greater intimacy with Jesus, and we don't know what to do. We don't know where to turn. We're not sure how to go about it or even where to start. Thankfully, that's what Paul just told us how to do, though. He, he, he gave us the steps. He told us, what spiritual formation is, and why it's important. Number one, what he shows us is that spiritual formation, it is about being formed into the image of Christ. That is the what. It is about being formed into the image of Christ. He says in verse 18, we are all, raise your hand if you're in the room. We are all, those with the hands raised, those without the hands raised, are being transformed into the same image, growing to be more like Jesus because spiritual formation is not about who you are. It is about who you are becoming more like, becoming more Christ-like, more Christ-like in the way we think with the mind of Christ, in the way that we live following the way of Jesus, in the way that we love loving like Jesus. Right? Spiritual formation is about being formed in the image of Christ. Number two, what he shows us here is that spiritual formation takes place by the power of the Spirit within us. That is the how. It takes place by the power of the Spirit within us. He says, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. We, we are not made sufficient for the life God calls us to by anything that we've done, but by what the Spirit is doing within us. Spiritual formation is, as Robert Mulholland refers to it in his book, uh, Invitation, a Journey 
to a journey, a, a book that we read in The Way, which is a, a three-year journey of spiritual growth and formation that you are able to join us on here at Redemption. He says spiritual formation is not something that we do to ourselves or for ourselves, but something we allow God to do in us and for us as we yield ourselves to the work of God's transforming grace. Opening ourselves to God, positioning ourselves before God, surrendering the entirety of our lives to God as a stone before a carver, Brother Lawrence writes, whereof he is to make a statue. Presenting myself thus before God, I desire him to form his perfect image in my soul and make me entirely like himself. Spiritual formation is being formed into the image of Christ and takes place by the power of the Spirit. And number three, here's the why. Spiritual formation is for the glory of God and the good of others. The glory of God and the good of others. Notice who I didn't mention in there. It's actually not about you. Mulholland, he defines spiritual formation as the process of being formed in the image of Christ. Why? For the sake of the other. It's enabling us to live for the glory of God and the good of others, enabling us to live out the great commandment of loving God and loving others, loving all others, loving one another, loving our neighbor, even loving our enemy and praying for those who persecute us. That is the what, that is the how, that is the why. Number four, what we see is that spiritual formation, though, it requires our participation, doesn't it? It requires our participation. We are not passive spectators, but active participants. And the way that we say this is that we are formed into the image of Jesus, growing to be more like Jesus, as we faithfully follow the way of Jesus in obedience to the words of Jesus. That is how we go about spiritual formation. It requires our participation formed with every step that we take. Number five, we begin to see where it happens. In spiritual formation, it takes place in community with others. Spiritual formation takes place in community with others. Lock yourself in a cave for the next 50 years and it will be a very different experience. We need others in our lives to see what we can't see. The Spirit speaking through those we trust, those who we've opened our lives to, those that we've been vulnerable with, helping us take that next step, helping us to grow. And number six, spiritual formation is an ongoing, lifelong journey. That is the when always on this journey, meaning there's no diploma the church hands out to say, congratulations, you have been perfectly formed in the image of Christ. Uh, we don't have a navigation system that says that you have arrived at your destination. Because this side of glory, until Christ returns, we are always growing, always taking steps. It is an ongoing, lifelong journey. And that means, number seven, that spiritual formation is slow not fast. This is a marathon, not a sprint. We can't speed up the process as much as we want to. We are incredibly impatient people, aren't we? We would sure like to microwave this process and get it done real quick, but think about barbecue. I don't even need to finish the illustration, do I? Now, mind you, we don't live in Kansas City. We don't live in Texas, so we really don't know barbecue. But there's like three places in all of Chicagoland. My favorite, the Texan out in Algonquin. I am not being uh, paid as a sponsor, but it's good. Yeah, I heard some mmms. You've been there, haven't you? 
really good barbecue takes time, doesn't it? It takes time for the meat to tenderize and soften. It, it takes time for the flavors to be taken in by the meat, flavors of the smoke, flavors of the seasoning. You cannot rush the process. And if you do, please do not invite anybody here to your barbecue. And I don't mean grilling hamburgers and hot dogs. That's not barbecue. That's grilling. That's still a good thing. Invite us to that. Good barbecue takes time. Man, there is no fast track on this journey that we are on of following Jesus, is there? We are not mass-producing disciples on a factory assembly line. And that's why the way, this spiritual formation journey that, that some have joined me on, that's why it is so ridiculously slow over a three-year period, not three months, not three weeks, not three days. Remember the phrase I shared with you a couple weeks ago? I've got it written on my board. Start small, go slow, keep it simple. That's our mantra. Because our growth from, from one degree to another, all growing at different rates, it's slow. It's painfully slow. Not only your growth, but the growth of others can be painfully slow. I've already gotten to this point. Why aren't you there yet? Well, it took you 15 years to get there, and they just heard about this five days ago. Maybe you give them a little bit of time. Maybe you give them the patience that was given to you. Maybe you extend the grace to them that was extended to you. It's slow, and we measure our spiritual growth in decades, not days. It's slow with some growth spurts along the way, though, isn't it? Like when you're growing and you grow four inches that one school year and mom and dad had to buy all new pants, all new shoes. It was the most expensive year in the history of your household. There's growth spurts along the way and we ride those waves when they come, don't we? And we celebrate that growth and then we settle back into the slow. There's nothing wrong with slow. And then number eight, spiritual formation involves the entirety of our lives. Every aspect of our lives. A common question that pastors are often asked is some form of, how do you do discipleship at your church? And they're really looking for one of two things. They're either looking for a program, right, a class that the church provides, or a relationship, a mentor the church provides. And hear me, there's nothing wrong with classes. There's nothing wrong with programs. I mean, The Way is a three-year program that you can sign up for. Side note, uh, we're going to have the, uh, an informational session on Sunday, November 5th, right after service. I've intentionally mentioned The Way like three or four times so far this morning. So you're like, what is this? I'd like to know more about it. You can sign up in the app for November 5th and learn more about it or find somebody who's already in it. We should have more mature Christians that we're following after and learning from and those that we're pouring into as well. But, but when we limit it to a class or a mentor, like we've, we've, we've taken far too narrow a view of discipleship, too narrow a view of spiritual growth and formation. Because think about it, as you read through the Gospels, Jesus didn't teach a class. No, he invited people to leave their old life and follow him. Not for 90 minutes once a month. Every moment of every day. Not down an easy path through a wide gate, but down a very difficult path through a very narrow gate. And as you read 
the book of Acts, as you read the epistles, you see Paul didn't just have one person. I think we've got it in our minds that it's a Paul-Timothy relationship. One Paul, one Timothy. That's not what's in here. Paul had, had, had many men that he was with. Timothy and Titus, Barnabas and Epaphroditus. He had many women he was with. Priscilla and Phoebe, Lydia and Junia. All of these men, all these women learning from him, serving alongside him as he came in and out of their lives over the course of his journeys, some traveling with him, some staying behind. Right? We cannot limit this to a singular class or singular relationship, but it is the whole of what we do, right? the entirety of our lives. It is the whole of who we do it with, the entirety of our relationships, because all of life becomes spiritual formation, Mulholland writes. We are always being formed every moment of every day with every step that we take. The only question before us is this. Who are you being formed by? And in whose image are you being formed into? Who are you being formed by and in whose image are you being formed into? Because make no mistakes, you you are being formed every moment of every day. And it is whatever you fill your mind with, whatever you watch, whatever you listen to, whatever you are thinking about. Are you being formed by the world that we live in or are you being formed by the word and how God has revealed himself to be through the written word of scripture and the living word of his son. Are you being formed into the image of our culture? Are you being formed into the image of Christ? It's like, we are inundated with news and information beyond our ability to comprehend and process. We are saturated with the thoughts of opinions and others of others. And we are constantly being formed by Fox News and CNN. We are constantly being formed by Twitter and TikTok and YouTube videos. And they ever so slowly begin to distract our attention and draw our affection further and further away from God. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm saying that sometimes they're 99% of what we're being formed by. And they distract our attention. They draw our affection away from God until his voice sounds so silent we can no longer hear it. His presence is so faint we can no longer feel it. And so that's why, that's why worshiping together on a regular, and by regular I mean weekly basis, is so important to our spiritual formation. It starts right here. This is spiritual formation. Because we need that reminder of who God is, don't we? We need that reminder of all God has done. We need that reminder of all God has promised to do. That's why worshiping together is part of spiritual formation. That's why praying together is a part of spiritual formation, being reminded that we're not on this journey alone. Then we begin to see how hospitality and vulnerability are part of spiritual formation, our opening our lives to one another, as well as service and generosity, living our lives for the glory of God and the good of others. These distinctives forming within us the primary distinctive by which the world will know us and recognize us. And Jesus says that is our love for one another. And so do you see now how this entire series has been about spiritual formation? I didn't mean to make that a secret. 
This whole series has been spiritual formation. This, this, this whole series is how we do discipleship. Do you see now how spiritual formation is not just a piece of what we do, but the entirety of everything that we do? From, from prayer to the lobby at 9.30 to worshiping in here at 10. Redemption kids on Sunday morning, youth in the afternoon. Fall Fest, where we open our gym to our community to have fun together and our Advent wreath party. Right? Serving on a missional team, coming to serve at the pantry and loving those in our community. Even Summer Sunday and Tacos, Jesus, and the Bears is about spiritual formation. We're 0-3, guys. There's been nothing but sanctification when you watch that team play. Pastor Ash, how do, we, how do you do discipleship at Redemption? That's how we do it. God willing, there's nothing we do that doesn't contribute to it. Because there are all ways in which we are being formed into the image of Jesus to one degree or another, from one aspect to another, growing to be more like Jesus, faithfully following the way of Jesus and obedience to his words. As we position our lives before God, opening our lives to God, surrendering the entirety of our lives to the work of God's Spirit within us, within us individually and among us collectively, leading us to love, leading us to live for the glory of God and the good of others. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.